Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Conner. Thank you for listening. In the last episode, we saw Christina Vasa assume the throne of Sweden in the year 1644. Well, to be more precise, she began personal rule at that time. Christina had technically been Queen of Sweden since her father died when she was only six years old. As it is bad policy to vest the power of the state in a child, a regency council was appointed by her late father to manage the affairs of state until she was old enough to rule. Once she began her period of personal rule, however, she began to discover that statecraft was not exactly her calling. This is not to say that she was an incompetent ruler by any means. She was trained to rule for practically her entire life. She learned from the most experienced statesmen and diplomats in Sweden. Only, her true passions lie in the arts and philosophy. She preferred the company of men like René Descartes to her advisors. She emptied the kingdom's coffers in collecting paintings, sculptures, rare books, manuscripts, and so on. As one might imagine, this caused some serious financial problems for the state. For the remainder of her reign, Christina scrambled to remedy the situation, but only managed to mess things up even more. Add to this situation her grief and guilt over the death of René Descartes, for which she was personally responsible, and the immense pressure on her to marry and produce an heir, one can only imagine the stress that she lived with. Her health began to fail her, and she suffered from a series of fainting spells and anxiety attacks, each more serious than the last. Because of all this, Christina contemplated abdicating the throne. She wanted nothing more than to relieve herself of the terrible burdens of rulership before they dragged her to an untimely death. More than anything, she had resolved to leave Sweden, this boring, drab locale where, as Descartes once said, the thoughts of men froze like water. Catholicism offered her a way out. From the time she had first taken up correspondence with René Descartes, the Queen had pondered the notion of converting to Catholicism. After all, it was inherently more appealing to her than the Protestantism in which she was raised. For one, Catholicism's position on women was far better. Whereas Martin Luther preached that a woman's purpose was to, quote, bear children unto death, unquote, Catholicism gave women the option to pursue a life of celibacy, a decision that was not only legitimate, but virtuous. Additionally, she believed that Catholicism offered greater intellectual freedom. Sure, Galileo had been subjected to persecution for asserting scientific truths that contradicted the Bible, but all the greatest thinkers that she admired, Somes, Bordelot, Descartes, and so on, were all Catholics. The Catholic sense of aestheticism, too, was greatly admired by Christina. Add to this Christina's personal antipathy towards the Protestant Christianity in which she was raised, and her conversion to Catholicism seems all but inevitable. But this was not necessarily the case. Converting to Catholicism, in her position especially, was a dangerous proposition. After all, Sweden was the defender of the Protestant faith. It had just prosecuted a war and lost a hundred thousand good men, Christina's father among them, all for the Protestant cause. The practice of Catholicism was illegal in the country, with some exceptions made for foreign diplomats. Punishments were often severe. Foreign missionaries, as well as their Swedish converts, were occasionally subjected to prison and torture. More often than not, they were simply banished from the country, and their property was confiscated. This is all to say that there was much to dissuade Christina from conversion. 
and that she very well could have pursued an alternative path, had it not been for a series of contacts with some very resolute members of the Jesuit order. Some quick background on the Jesuits for the uninitiated. The Jesuit order, officially known as the Society of Jesus, was, and I suppose still is, a Catholic religious order founded in the immediate aftermath of the Protestant Reformation. Their primary focus was on evangelization. They were most active in the Americas, Christianizing the natives and whatnot, but there was also a significant academic aspect to their work. Today, there are over 170 universities worldwide founded by the Jesuits. Members of the order were generally very well educated and made significant contributions to the fields of philosophy and the natural sciences. Thus, it makes sense that this type of individual would appeal very much to Queen Christina's sensibilities. Her first contact with the Jesuits was in 1651 by way of the Portuguese ambassador to Sweden, José de Pereira. Pereira had come to Stockholm to negotiate with Chancellor Oxenstierna regarding the terms for Sweden's trade in Portugal's West African colonies. Sweden at this time had its own colonial ambitions in Africa. When more pressing matters necessitated that Chancellor Oxenstierna direct his attention elsewhere, the Queen herself decided to personally handle the discussions. This put her into contact with Pereira's secretary, one Father Antonio Macedo, a Jesuit priest. As chance had it, Macedo and Christina had a friend in common, Lars Skitt, the Swedish ambassador to Portugal, who had since converted to Catholicism himself and become a Franciscan monk. Christina and Macedo's conversations diverged from the topic of the trade agreement and went on to heavier topics, such as life, philosophy, religion, and things of that nature. Christina questioned Macedo thoroughly on the subject of the Catholic Church. When they were discussing the subject of intellectual liberty and the Church, Macedo confessed that he was by no means the most knowledgeable person on the topic, but he assured the Queen that she could talk to many other members of the Order that were more knowledgeable than he. Late one night, Christina pulled Father Macedo into her bedchamber and revealed to him that she was considering converting to Catholicism. She then charged him with a mission to relay this information to his superiors in Rome and to return with two other members of the Jesuit order so that she may continue to learn about the religion. What followed was a tale of high intrigue and suspense. Macedo first requested his superior for leave giving some vague reasoning about wanting to visit Hamburg, of all places. Pereira was suspicious of Macaido, given all the time he had been spending in the Queen's company, and he denied him leave. One night, late in August, Christina had Macaido spirited away from the castle in secret. In his possession was a passport with Christina's personal seal, which would allow him swift passage through any port of call. Pereira suspected that Macaido had stolen some sensitive documents of his, and he requested that Christina dispatch agents to arrest him. This the queen did, although she did so with the instructions that if they were to find the renegade Jesuit, they were to pretend as though they hadn't. Macedo arrived in Rome in October, and excitedly relayed Christina's message to Father Goshwin Nickel, superior general of the Society of Jesus. He dared not retell what the queen had told him in confidence, but the letter's tone, and the mere fact that it existed in the first place, was enough for the matter to be granted the utmost priority. Father Nicol consulted Cardinal Fabio Chigi for advice. Chigi had previously served as the Papal State's delegates to the negotiations at Westphalia, 
and as such he was the man in Rome with the most direct experience with the queen. Chigi encouraged Father Nicol to send the two Jesuits Christina had requested post-haste, and even suggested two candidates whom he believed would best appeal to the young queen, Paolo Cassati and Francesco Malines, both of whom were very well educated. Cassati was a professor of mathematics, and Malines a professor of theology. Malines and Cassati departed from Rome in November 1651 and arrived in Stockholm in March 1652, an arduous five-month journey. Growing out their facial hair and ditching their simple cassocks for more expensive-looking clothing, the two Jesuits played the part of two wealthy Italian tourists who had come to visit Sweden for some reason. Upon their arrival, Christina received the two men at court, formally welcoming them to Sweden. The next day, she met with them again, this time in secret. She confessed to them that she had been assailed by doubt when it came to religion. When she was younger, she had gone out of her way to examine all the major religions and their denominations on their own merits, and reached the conclusion that simply acquiescing to the Protestant Lutheran denomination in which she was raised was for the best. But, she said, she never truly believed in it. She was inclined to believe that a true faith did exist somewhere, and if it did, it must be in Rome. She bombarded the two Jesuits with questions in regards to her reservations towards Catholicism. Their discussion was focused on questions of epistemology. How could the supernatural content of the Bible be reconciled with modern empiricism? Should the Bible be interpreted symbolically, and if so, to what extent? Does the soul truly live forever? In short, all her questions can be boiled down to one. How can it be proved that Catholicism is the one true faith? To this, the Jesuits had a very simple answer. Reason alone is not sufficient to explain the mysteries of faith. This much they conceded. Therefore, one must recognize that faith stands above reason, but does not necessarily contradict it. Surprisingly, to the Jesuits at least, Christina understood, and more or less accepted their assertions at face value. In his report back to his superiors in Rome, Malines wrote, quote, We were amazed to find a 25-year-old princess so lacking in the vanities that usually beset the great of this world, and with so sure a judgment of the true worth of things that it seemed that she must have come into the world with the quintessence of theology born in her, end quote. After three months of discussions with the Jesuits, Christina informed them that while she had not been entirely convinced of the eternal truth of the Catholic doctrine, she nevertheless intended to, once and for all, convert to Catholicism. Their mission completed, the two Jesuits parted ways. Cassati returned to Rome to make preparations for the Queen's eventual arrival in that city, while Malines remained in Stockholm to provide spiritual and emotional support to the Queen as she went through the process of abdication. Christina had, at this point, firmly resolved to abdicate, as she wrote to her friend Pierre-Hector Chanu, by then serving as the French ambassador to the Netherlands, quote, I did not decide to carry out this plan until I had considered it for at least eight years, end quote. Before she began the official proceedings, there were a few loose ends to tie up first. Firstly, and most importantly, there was the matter of succession. Christina was the sole legitimate child of the late king, Gustav II Adolf, and she, of course, had no children of her own, so there was no heir apparent. It was obvious to Christina, however, who exactly should succeed her, her cousin, Carl Gustav. Back when she rejected him in 1646, she had promised to make him her successor, perhaps with the thought of her abdication or her untimely death, 
already in the back of her mind. Already she had made arrangements so that he would succeed her as king regardless. Now she had to secure his position as hereditary crown prince of the realm. The issue was that, in the current arrangement, in the event of Carl Gustav's own untimely death, the Reichstag reserved the right to elect his successor. If he were made hereditary prince, on the other hand, the rules of ignatic primogeniture would be followed, and the crown would pass on to either Carl Gustav's offspring or to one of his German relatives. The latter scenario was very undesirable to the men of the Reichstag, but Christina could not in good conscience leave her cousin and her nation in such a precarious position. In 1651, she went before her council of state and informed them of her intention to abdicate, and requested that Carl Gustav be made hereditary prince of the realm. She argued that it was the only way to ensure a clear line of succession and to avoid civil unrest. Carl Gustav was the ideal person for the position. He was capable, and more importantly, he was, unlike Christina, inclined to marry and have children. The council refused to even entertain the notion, and came down firmly against such a thing. For the time being, Christina demurred, agreeing to table the notion of abdication on the condition that the subject of her marriage was never again broached. But Christina would not give up. Two years later, she decided to go through with her plan to abdicate, regardless of the opposition. She called a meeting of the Council of State in early 1654, and once again informed them of her intention to abdicate. The men of the council who, had just two years prior, had believed that they had permanently dissuaded the queen from taking this course of action, began to panic. They devised all sorts of arrangements whereby Christina would be able to remain on the throne, including one in which she would share power with Carl Gustav. Christina had none of it. She assured them that there was nothing that they could do to dissuade her, and that she would be making a formal act of abdication when the Reichstag convened that spring. This meeting of the Reichstag occurred in May 1654. Christina presented herself before this convocation of the nation's foremost figures and stated her plea. Quote, this is a strange meeting, but I have one purpose, to give into the hands of my most dear cousin our most dear country and the royal seat, with the crown, the scepter, and the government. If in these ten years of my administration I have merited anything from you, it shall be only this that I desire that you consent to my resolution, since you may assure yourselves that none can dissuade me from my purpose." End quote. Nevertheless, many ignored this plea and attempted to dissuade her regardless. Chief among them was Chancellor Oxenstierna, who made one last attempt to talk Christina down. He invoked the memory of her father, saying that he had made an oath to the late king to keep Christina on the throne, no matter what. Others in attendance made similar appeals, but they all fell on deaf ears. She submitted her formal act of abdication, which the men of the Reichstag ultimately and reluctantly approved. The date of the abdication ceremony was set for the 6th of June that year. There was also the matter of the Queen's personal finances. To live comfortably, Christina estimated that she would need about 200,000 Reichsdollar per year. Expecting some resistance from the council in the Reichstag, Christina tried all manner of schemes to acquire the sum. She requested a pension from the King of Spain. She tried to have France issue back payments of war subsidies to her personally. And she tried to auction off Sweden's few colonial holdings to England. None of these plans came to fruition. Eventually, she decided to petition the Reichstag directly. She demanded sovereign rights, read, the right to collect taxes, to extensive property holdings along the Baltic coast. 
Thus, her pension would not come out of the royal treasury, but rather it would, in a sense, pay for itself. She managed to get the Reichstag to agree to such a settlement, but she still feared that her assets might be seized after she went public with her conversion. To ensure that she would still have the means to live comfortably, Christina arranged for her most valuable possessions to be smuggled from the country. She had her massive collection of books, artwork, and other valuables put on a ship that was bound first for France, then for Rome. The abdication ceremony took place, as scheduled, on the 6th of June, 1654. It was held in Uppsala Castle. The queen arrived at 9 o'clock that morning, wearing the same crown and robe that she had worn at her coronation only four years prior. In the front of the castle's great hall, all the queen's other regalia were placed upon four velvet pillows. She gave a brief address to the audience, restating the reasons for her abdication. She then requested that one of her courtiers symbolically remove the crown from her head. Nobody volunteered for the task beforehand, and everyone was too apprehensive to step forward now. Christina took it upon herself, slowly removing her crown and placing it upon a fifth velvet pillow. She then curtsied to Carl Gustav and once more to the audience, and exited without saying a word. Carl Gustav was later crowned King of Sweden that very day in Uppsala Cathedral. Thus ended the reign of Queen Christina I of Sweden. She had been queen for 22 years, but reigned for only 10. Only three days after the abdication, Christina departed from Stockholm in the dead of night, with Rome as her destination. She traveled first to the town of Halmstad on the Swedish-Danish border. There, she dismissed most of her retinue, including her Lutheran chaplain. Christina had been careful to keep up appearances in regard to her religion thus far, but now all that went out the window. From Holmstead, Christina and the four courtiers that remained in her tow traveled to the town of Laholm, some 30 kilometers south. In order to pass through Denmark unmolested, the former queen felt the need to adopt a disguise. She cut her hair and ditched her dress for men's clothing boots and trousers and a sword at her side, and adopted the name of one of her former courtiers, Count Christoph von Donna. While in Laholm, a courier arrived bearing a note from Karl Gustav, now King Karl X Gustav. It was one last desperate request for Christina to marry him. She, of course, refused. She blazed ahead, outpacing her baggage trains by several days' ride, arriving in Hamburg in mid-July. All this was unnecessary. Her disguise did not deceive even the most amateur spies, Swedish and Danish alike. What's more, the king and queen of Denmark had known of Christina's entry into their kingdom way ahead of time, and made plans to receive her when she finally crossed over, only to be blown off completely. Carl Gustav ordered an entire fleet to be placed at Christina's disposal, if she chose to avail herself of it. Of course she did no such thing. She loved the illusion of danger, and more importantly, she loved the thrill of having finally found her freedom. While she was in Hamburg, she decided to pay a visit to the local ruler, Duke Friedrich III von Holstein Gottorp. The Dukes of Holstein Gottorp had historically enjoyed good relations with Sweden. What's more, Christina was related to them by way of her mother. And as it just so happened, Duke Friedrich was seeking to marry off one of his daughters, potentially to the new king of Sweden. Carl Gustav dispatched his brother Adolf to discuss such a prospect. Christina met with both of them, and sent a letter to her cousin advising him to marry the elder of the two daughters. Carl Gustav, whether it was that he found her more attractive, or whether it was just to spite Christina, 
chose to marry the younger of the two daughters. Whatever the case, Christina speculated that Carl Gustav would later come to regret his choice of spouse. After having spent two weeks in Hamburg, Christina departed, without telling anyone beforehand. After traveling through Holland, she arrived in Antwerp on the 5th of August. Antwerp, and all of modern Belgium was, at this time, a possession of the Catholic Kingdom of Spain. She took up residence in the mansion of Garcia de Ilan, a Sephardic, that is, Jewish, merchant, while she awaited for a formal invitation to Rome, where she would make her public conversion to Catholicism and, hopefully, live in the Vatican as a personal guest of the Pope. Still insisting on secrecy, Christina went through Spanish diplomatic channels to arrange this, but the Spanish were very reluctant. The current Pope, Innocent X, was deathly ill, and it was thought that his successor would not share his pro-Spanish stance. So the Spanish diplomats dragged their feet, but Christina was very anxious to convert. She had set aside all her reservations about secrecy and public image, and about the faith itself. So she decided that she would make a private conversion in Brussels as soon as possible, and make her public conversion in Rome, just as she had planned. The King of Spain was more than eager to oblige her. He organized great festivities in Brussels, mindful of the diplomatic prestige that this would grant him. Christina traveled from Antwerp to Brussels in an extravagant barge, and massive crowds gathered at either side of the river to greet the former queen into the regional capital. The day after the queen's procession into Brussels was Christmas Eve, 1654. That day, Christina was baptized into the Catholic faith in a small chapel. The priest recited a Bible verse that absolved the former queen of her past heresy, and Christina officially became a Catholic. Cannon salvos and fireworks went off throughout Brussels to mark the occasion, although the confused residents likely had no idea what they were all for. Pope Innocent died in early January. The selection of a new pope was quite an intensive process, and Christina could not move to Rome until Innocent's successor had been selected and given his approval. So she spent the meantime in Brussels. She lived quite lavishly, attending all sorts of balls and festivities and acting, quote, so gay as to be almost boisterous, end quote. She seemed to be, for once, actually enjoying herself. Of course, her extravagant lifestyle once again caught up with her. She blew quickly through the money that she had on hand, and was forced to sell off a number of her personal possessions just to make ends meet. In April, a new pope was selected, Cardinal Fabio Chigi, who chose the regnal name Alexander VII. Pope Alexander was prepared to receive Christina into Rome, but he made it clear that the Holy See's finances were in no shape to grant her any significant financial assistance. Eventually, she was able to secure a loan from her host in Antwerp, for a sum that was only two-thirds of her annual income that she was supposed to have received from Sweden. The reason why Christina could no longer rely on her pension from Sweden was because that summer, Sweden went to war with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and Christina's massive pension was an expense that the crown could not afford. Other news coming from home at this time caused Christina even far greater distress. Within months of each other, both her mother, Maria Eleonora, and Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna died. Despite her rocky relationships with both of them, their deaths had a profound effect on her. Her previously gay and boisterous demeanor gave way once again to her old, melancholy, and subdued disposition. She left Brussels and stayed in the nearby countryside, not being seen by anyone for three weeks on end. With her financial situation resolved, at least for the time being, Christina and her retinue departed the Spanish Netherlands for good in September, 
they arrived in the Austrian town of Innsbruck in early November. Because the Pope had his reservations about receiving a heretic queen into the Vatican, he stipulated that Christina should make her public conversion beforehand, unaware that she had already made a private conversion in Antwerp a year earlier. However, Christina was more than happy to make a public conversion now as a demonstration of her fealty to the church. To this end, the Pope dispatched his legate, Lucas Holstenius, to receive her public confession of faith. And so, on November 3rd, Christina stood before legate Holstenius and recited the Nicene Creed in a loud and clear voice. Following her baptism, Holstenius absolved her once more of her heresy. Instead of cannons and fireworks, this time those in the assembly sang the Te Deum, a Catholic hymn. Even though this was her public conversion, the ceremony was far more solemn than the one in Brussels a year prior. With her conversion now public, Christina wrote a letter to the Pope, quote, Finally, I have arrived where I so long desired to be, folded in the bosom of our mother, the Roman Catholic Church, and I humbly beg you to honor me with your benevolent commands. I have shown the world that, in order to obey your holiness, I have been ready to relinquish my throne, placed as it was in the midst of irredeemable sin. It is a greater glory to serve your holiness than to rule from even the highest throne. I have nothing else to offer you other than my own self and my blood and my life. I offer it all to your holiness, asking only to kiss your most holy feet, your obedient daughter, Christina. End quote. Within a week of her conversion, Christina set off to Rome. Her route through Italy was by no means a direct one. This was intentional on the part of the Vatican. Christina passed through dozens of towns in the Papal States, Ferrara, then Bologna, Pesaro, Ancona, Loreto, and Assisi, just to name a few. At every stop, Christina was greeted by throngs of joyful Catholics, and all sorts of amusements and spectacles were arranged for her. Christina reached Rome on the night of December the 19th. She was not scheduled to arrive until the next day, but nevertheless she slunk into the city in the dark, and made directly for the Pope's private quarters, seeking an audience. Historians do not know the specifics of Alexander and Christina's first meeting, but it is assumed it went well, as he allowed Christina to spend that night in the Vatican. The next day, Christina entered the city of Rome officially. She rode a stark white horse, and was, quote, wearing the garb of an Amazon, with riding breeches elaborately embroidered in gold, and a man's hat with a large plume, end quote. The Pope rode out to meet her, and together the two rode through the city, flanked on either side by joyous crowds, to St. Peter's Basilica. There, Christina knelt before the high altar, and received the sacrament of the Eucharist from the Pope himself. At this time, she also received the sacrament of confirmation, wherein the recipient essentially confirms their belief in Catholicism. As a sign of their renewed commitment to the faith, the recipients of the sacrament typically choose a confirmation name. Christina chose the name Alexandra, in honor of her patron, Pope Alexander VII. Christina's permanent residence in Rome was the Palazzo Farinese, an impressive piece of Italian Renaissance architecture which was designed, at least in part, by Michelangelo himself. The palace was owned, as the name suggests, by the Farinese family, the hereditary Dukes of Parma. It had been sitting unoccupied for a few decades at this point, and the family was more than happy to lease their property to the darling convert of Catholicism. It was amidst this magnificent backdrop of Renaissance architecture that Christina frequently entertained guests. Owing to Christina's disdain for other women, the guests were, for the most part, men, and men around her own age at that. 
not helping things was the fact that these men her own age that she was meeting with in private were, many of them, cardinals, men of the church. As one can imagine, many rumors went around concerning Christina's relations with these men. These rumors were, for the most part, false, but there was one man in particular that Christina became particularly intimate with during this time, Cardinal Decio Azzolino. He is described as not being possessed of a particularly great intelligence, but he was very adept at code-breaking, and the skill made him an indispensable member of the Vatican's Secretariat of State. He was a man of high culture, he was lively and provocative, and physically he is said to have had a rather feminine physique. In a lot of aspects, Azzolino was Christina's foil. The two soon began to spend quite a lot of time together. Christina found herself divulging all of her anxieties to him, and within three months, the two had formed a friendship that would last until her death. It cannot be overstated what a boon Christina's conversion was for the church in general, and for Pope Alexander specifically. For months on end after her arrival in Rome, festivities were thrown in her honor. Christina hardly had a moment to sit down and think, all of her time was taken up in meetings with scholars, taking in the sights of the city, and attending the countless operas, festivals, parties, balls, carnivals, and other such amusements. As weeks turned into months, and the revelry continued at the same pace, Christina soon felt burnt out. In July 1656, after only seven months in Rome, Christina decided that it was time to leave Italy for France. Officially, the reason she gave for leaving Rome was an outbreak of plague in the city, but her actual reasons for leaving were far more complex. For one, she had fallen into disrepute among Roman high society. Among other things, her persistent habit of fraternizing with men of her own age, and her poor upkeep of the Palazzo Farinese, and her frequent displays of irreverence in church, had all become the subject of much gossip, which was a thorn in the side of her host, Pope Alexander. The Pope was doubtless annoyed even further when Christina approached him asking for a loan to secure passage to France, although he did eventually grant her a loan of 10,000 crowns, possibly with the hope that she would be out of his hair for good. On July 16, 1656, aboard the papal vessel La Padrone, Christina left the Eternal City, bound for France. The actual reasons Christina had for going to France were even more convoluted. Through Azzolino, Christina had become involved with a political faction within the Vatican, known as the Squadron Volante, the Flying Squadron. This was an energetic new faction of cardinals who sought to realign the Papal States diplomatically away from Spain and towards France. Now in France, Cardinal Richelieu, the man who was the true power behind the throne, had died in 1642, and was succeeded in his role by his protege, Cardinal Mazarin. Mazarin continued his predecessor's efforts to undermine Habsburg power, even after the Thirty Years' War had ended. One of his schemes to this end involved usurping Spanish control over the Kingdom of Naples, which was ruled by the King of Spain in a personal union, and placing a French puppet monarch upon the throne. Mazarin's ideal candidate for this role was King Louis XIII's brother, Philippe, the Duke of Orléans. But as the king was only 18 years old at the time and had yet to produce an heir, it was decided that Philippe should be kept close at hand, should any misfortune befall his brother. Some members of the Squadron Volante suggested that Christina might prove to be a suitable replacement. She was more amenable to the interests of France rather than of Spain, her name was one that was respected throughout Catholic Europe, and she had prior experiences with the rigors of ruling a kingdom. 
What's more, Christina, for whatever reason, had become possessed of a strong desire to rule once more, which at least one biographer claims was rooted in her fear of inactivity. Christina and Mazarin took up a secret correspondence and began to discuss the possibility of Christina ruling Naples as a regent queen with French support. Not willing to leave anything to chance, Christina had decided to travel to France herself to finalize these plans with Cardinal Mazarin in person. And it is there that I will leave the narrative off for now, with Christina departing the city of her dreams for the chance at reclaiming some of her power in France. But would her scheme to become the Queen of Naples meet with any success? You'll have to tune in again in two weeks to find out. In the meantime, if you have any questions, concerns, requests, or anything of a similar nature, you can address these things to me via my email, historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which will be found in the description of this episode. Until two weeks, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Noah Connor, signing off.